Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. We're back in Davos at the World Economic Forum, where we kicked off this podcast in 2020. I'm excited to share with you my conversations this year with amazing leaders who are driving global change. In this episode, I'm speaking with Diana Markaki, founder and CEO of The Boardroom, an organization dedicated to preparing women who aspire to be board members. She built a rigorous approach for helping executive women get on boards, starting with women in Switzerland and now expanding across Europe. It was terrific to see the fundamental role men play and how she's leveraged their support to advance women. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Diana, thank you for joining us on the Women on the Move podcast. It is so great to see you here in Davos and record with you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, Sam. So let's start out with your career journey. You've had so many different roles and things that you've done in your career. You've been a lawyer, board member, director, CEO, so much more. Tell us about how you started and the many different steps you've had along your journey. Thank you. Well, I definitely do not have a linear career. I knew growing up that I always had this very strong sense of justice, the difference between right and wrong and fighting for the poor and standing up for what's right. Then I guess at that age, what made sense for me to become a lawyer, because that was the closest thing to fighting the good fight. So then I went on to study law. With law, you are a little bit constrained by jurisdiction, by the laws of a country. And and I had big dreams. I wanted to address the big problems of the world and have a big impact. So that's when I decided to go to New York, where I was trained as an international lawyer. And what were the things that you were most passionate about in terms of solving in society? I wanted to, as I said, solve the big problems, right? So I always had this strong sense of how can we fight for equality and how can we make human lives you know, a little bit better and the world a little bit better. So international law for me was a way to do that. So then I went to the United Nations in New York where I worked for a couple of years and that gave me a huge perspective around things are not the way in my little bubble. So there are big world problems. And I think that 20 years later, where I am today fighting for equality with a focus on gender equality, I think starting from that journey, working as an international lawyer 20 years ago. And tell us about when you were growing up, what influences did you have along the way that even made you so interested in fighting the good fight? Were there parents or other influences that you had along the way? I grew up in a family that was not so, wasn't the, uh, the status quo in the sense that my mother was a very successful career woman. 55 years ago, she was the only female engineer at her university class, managing hundreds of men. My family tells me that I was almost born on a construction site because my mother was like seven months old and she was like on bumpy roads for construction sites. And then that's what actually triggered being born a little bit earlier. So it was like I was almost born on a construction inside. And then I was very close to my father. He was taking care of us. He was driving us from one class to the other. Grew up within that environment and my older brother always treated me as an equal, right? And I realized very quickly that that's not common. I saw that at school where, you know, my friends were being picked up by their mothers and everyone was asking me, but where is your mother and why is your father picking you up from school? And I saw that that worked for us. So it was the model that worked for my family. And then I didn't realize why that could not work for other families. I love that. 
So tell us about the work that you're doing to help more women get on boards. Tell us about the boardroom. What is the mission? And how did you come to start it? I guess with all passion projects, the boardroom started with me trying to solve a problem for myself. <laughs> so I had just started my board career. I was relatively young, so I was 36, had received my first public board appointment. I was the only woman on the board, by far the youngest. And in a situation like this, obviously the last thing I wanted was for my older male people to actually challenge my credentials. So I actually wanted to be the best board member anyone had ever met. So immediately I started looking at the different things that I had to do in order to be a successful board member. Then I built a solution for myself. And during that time, I was doing my executive MBA at Harvard Business School, where you're actually asked to bring a problem in order to build a solution. Then I decided to actually test that solution. And that gave me the opportunity to put it into an actual business case. And very quickly I realized there's so many people people that have the same problem that I had. So then I decided to share the solution with the world. So tell us about the model you developed to be a great board member and all the different steps that were important to you. The boardroom, we developed what we call the holistic approach to board readiness in the sense that we identified everything that an executive needs for the next step in our career. Then we brought everything together in a one-stop shop approach, and then we built it under four pillars. So these four pillars are actually the proprietary solution that the boardroom is bringing. Tell us about those four pillars. The first pillar is executive education for aspiring board members, where we have built a proprietary five-module curriculum that was the result of market research of three years, where me and five members of my team actually attended all internationally renowned programs for board members. And then we built that proprietary five-module curriculum, which is all the education that an executive needs for the next step in their career. And then we couple that with board meeting simulations, which is the practical aspect where you see in practice what it means to be a board member. So that's the first pillar. We start with board education. The second pillar is what we call the Inner Circle Program, which is actually a combination of leadership development and peer learning. I love that part because our members are put into groups of eight to ten members of the boardroom that come from different industries, different companies, and different functional expertise. So they're like a dream team board of directors. This is how our board should be. And then they work together on actual business cases as a board of directors. So in practice, we leave board diversity through the second pillar. Then the third pillar is what we call strategic networking, which is actually the moment where the men come into play for the first time. So indeed, when we built the solution of the boardroom, it was gender agnostic in the sense that the solution can be applied to both men and women. But we offer it only to women, at least for the first few years, to combine it with my personal mission, which is to increase the number of qualified women on corporate boards. But the third pillar is the moment where we bring male supporters. And I love that we gave them a name, right? Male supporters are actually men in positions of power that support senior female talent retention and board diversity. So within the third pillar, we build a new network of the top executives, men and women. So you are bringing in men that you have gone out and recruited to help you in this effort. And are those men expected to help coach the women in the boardroom? Are they expected to help them place or get on boards or all of the above? That's a good question. So we don't do coaching on mentoring because we believe that our women are just as good and qualified as the men. So the men are actually committed to bringing more women on their executive committees, on their executive boards and on their corporate boards. So when they have an opening and they want to fill it with an amazing executive, then immediately they tap into the community of the boardroom and then we make nominations and referrals to make sure that we place the right people in the right positions. 
love that you're not saying women, you need more training. They need the connections, they need the community, and they need that network to pull them through. Exactly. And through that experience, men, men in positions of power that have that influence on the boards and the companies in general, they see how well we can coexist. How beautiful it is to have a room with so many diverse viewpoints, experience and expertise, and how more interesting it is to actually work with women. The fourth pillar is what we call inspiration, the role models, representation, in the sense that you cannot be what you cannot see. This is when we bring big, inspiring women powerhouses like Jelly Zalit from the Female Caution, Cindy Gallup, and many others to have these, you know, super inspirational conversations that take us to the next level. And all of this, we always do in person. So we believe in actually building relationships. And that's why the boardroom has its own location, its own permanent physical place, which is what we call the private club house. So in Switzerland, for example, the private house is a beautiful villa in the center of Zurich. So our members go on a daily basis, they do home office there, they do you know meetings with clients, they get inspired and they connect. But most importantly, this is where everything happens. So we do the coaching, the education, the board meetings, and this is where we meet also with the male supporters. Because it's important to have a safe physical location. As you know, it's your home, you open the door, you meet other like-minded women and men that support us. How did you do this all during COVID? How did you move into the virtual space? Did you have the physical space before the pandemic? We launched the boardroom at the beginning of the pandemic. We actually shared our vision with the world at the beginning of the pandemic, but that gave us a little bit of time to actually prepare and set everything going. Then we launched after there was a little bit of relaxation in COVID measures. And so we have never gone virtual. And we are really trying to continue into that physical interaction, in-person communication to build deep and long-lasting relationships. And we can see the difference. There's a huge difference when you know that you have the same place that you meet on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, you know, with other men and women that share the same mission. And we try to do it, of course, as pleasant as possible. I mean, the different elements you pull together seem so unique. I've never heard of a program that has not only the training, but the practical work, the men coming in with a role, and then that inspiration piece at the end. I just love that. I think that's so unique. When you were going out there and looking at all those different programs, what gaps did you see? that they weren't fulfilling. That was the exercise that we were doing. We looked at everything that's out there. And if you think about it, there is a little bit of everything out there, but none of them had this holistic approach. And that's why we decided to take the best of everything. So the best education, the best learning from leadership programs, the best aspects of a community, and then bringing all together and package it, for example, with a beautiful private clubhouse. So we were solving the issue of loose online networks that didn't actually fulfill the need for deep, long-lasting relationships. We were solving the issue of very theoretical education on programs. And that's why we added the board meeting simulations. We made it all very practical. We use case studies. We do role modeling as board members. And then we package that all in a strong sense of community. Our members are a very tight-knit group of women that grow together, support each other. We also have our own mobile app so they can communicate together 24-7. And whoever needs support immediately, you see the power of the community. Everyone jumps in to offer help. You see the community coming together. That's fabulous. And how many women are part of this community now? And what's the experience look like in terms of length of time? So if I join today, how long am I in the community, especially with some of that programming? 
We started last year with 120 founding members out of 1,000 applications. There were two main reasons why we could not onboard more than that. Firstly, we focus on a very small target of women. So our members are senior women executives who want to become board members. So that already limited a little bit our target group. The reason why we focus at such very high seniority is not because we want to be exclusive or anything else. It's because we want to accelerate change. So we need to focus our limited time and effort in order to get women that are as close to becoming a successful board member as possible in order to create that critical mass by placing more qualified women on corporate boards. And that would allow us to then go to the second level and build that pipeline. So is that part of your future plan? It is part of our future plan. Once we create the critical mass that's needed at the board level, these women, together with the support of the boardroom structure, are going to build the pipeline, and then we go to the next generation of leaders that will be able to join boards. But it is time critical to create that critical mass, and that's why we focus only to very senior women executives that are determined to put in the time and effort to become a successful board member. Now, are you tracking outcomes in terms of how many boards these women are getting on, and if so, any early results? Initial KPI, and we come for business, we measure everything. How many women are we going to appoint on boards? Very quickly, we change that metric to how many requests are we going to have to place women on boards? Because a lot of our members, they're very experienced and they know what's happening and you get a lot of traction and, you know, people call you every week to get on a board and you have the regulation coming in with quotas and so on. So they don't want to rush in actually accept the first position that is being offered to them and they want to at least go through the program one or two years, be self-confident, know everything that they need to know and so on. We were being asked more than our members were willing to accept. That's so interesting, though, which is great. I love that you changed that outcome because I think that shows more the demand versus the outcomes when you actually select and get on a board. That can be a very long term process. As you say, you may not go and say yes to everything that comes your way, but the demand really shows the companies are opening up and wanting to bring in that talent. And that's an aperture we have to get wider, knowing that more women ultimately will get on the boards. Exactly. And getting on a board or appointing someone on a board is the same as with any recruitment process. For one position, you need to look at at least, you know, 10 qualified candidates, right? So we need to create that pool and then create also the demand from the company. So now I see the demand. And for them now, we're one-stop shop to get the top women because they know that their women are rigorously selected. They're supported. They're trained. They're prepared. They're qualified. They come to us for a very quick solution. So tell me some of the things that women going through the program find surprising about actually being on the board. Did they have some preconception of what it means to actually serve in terms of the job, what it would take, and how are you able to really bust their myths? I think one great myth that applies to both men and women is that being a board member is a four times a year job, dinner afterwards or lunch before. You know, during COVID especially, that myth was crushed. The board that was serving during COVID, we were talking about board meetings on a weekly basis, continuous crisis management. Everything was online, which was like gives you this fatigue. The time commitment is surprising, I think, from anyone joining a board today. And 
also, it's not just preparing for the meeting, going through the pre-reads, actually attending monthly meetings and so on. Throughout the year, you need to continuously monitor the market. What's the competition doing? Building relationship with the other board members, which is very important. You need to be able to actually rely to your following board members when there's a crisis, things are not going so smoothly. So you need to invest the time to also build relationship with your board members and also know who is the expert on the room on what and then turn to this person when you need that help and support. So I think the time commitment is surprising for everyone. That's really interesting. So now your organization is currently working with women in Switzerland. We opened our second location in Greece, in Athens, because I'm from Greece, our third location in Denmark and Copenhagen. And now we're opening London, Paris and Brussels and six more countries next year. So we are actually expanding across Europe. And fast. How are you scaling a team and how are you approaching finding the locations? since it sounds like the physical locations are going to be so important? The first most important thing is finding the right people. It's all about the people, right? That's what makes the difference. Finding a very strong chair. That's how we work. In every country, we have amazing chairs that are full-time women executives that are thriving in their career and are role models in the country. So finding those women is a very important first step. And I'm very lucky to have amazing chairs in all countries. Secondly, finding the companies to support us. And we don't accept companies that are just taking the box. I'm not going to be used by any corporation to ping wash, put me on my ESG report. So choosing the companies actually has a very robust process from our side. We meet not only with the HR department, also the CEO, and we also ask them to have male supporters to commit to our program. The third important step is finding the right members. And when I say the right members, it's not only the women that have the career and the expertise and the seniority, but are also the ones that are willing to put in the time and effort because it's not easy to become a successful board member. And secondly, that they're willing to support other women. That is a commitment that we want from our members. And then fourthly, finding the amazing location in every country because it needs to be in a central location, easily accessible, super wow and luxury. And, you know, being a startup, financing that aspect is, is a big struggle. No, I imagine. Are these corporate members the ones helping you to finance this? So you're looking at the corporate memberships to really be the revenue drivers? Correct. 90% is financed by corporates. So there are corporate sponsors and we work with them. And then the remaining 10% is the membership fee. Mostly is a very, as my husband says, very expensive hobby because it's financed by myself. They're like, why couldn't you just buy bags? I said, like, well, that's my mission. Bags don't have the same payback as lovely as they are, but you will get there. Can you describe how the process of joining a board might be different across different countries? It's not as different as one would assume, or at least I assumed. You go through these informal networks that most of them are dominated by men. Someone knows a guy that knows a guy that played golf together, were in the army together, and that's how it goes. That's why we bring the male supporters, right? So we're actually disrupting the boys' club by keeping the good men and expanding the network. It's really getting women into that same network. I love what you're doing in the sense that we've seen a lot of organizations around the world be only for women. They pull women kind of to the side and we get together and they're very valuable for sure. And you love building that community and learning from each other. But without the men coming in to really break the patterns and invite them into those clubs, my fear is that women just keep talking only to each other. Absolutely. And of course, I would love to be with women and have an all women's, but we need to be realistic and we need to know how the system works. And you need to be in the system if you want to change it. So I made a very conscious decision to 
actually bring everyone along. And we do have men, as I said, as an integral part of our solution, of our program. And that's why, as I said, we gave them a name and, and they love, you know, they're going, oh, you're a male supporter. They all know each other. So we invite them to all these like activities and like board meetings and seminars and so on. And it's surprising. All the men know each other and they love to call each other male supporters. Oh, I'm a male supporter at the boardroom too. And I love that because it gives them a sense of belonging. And, you know, sometimes it's surprising, like a little thing like that, giving them a name automatically builds that sense of community also for the men. Think about a male supporter who's been particularly strong, very valuable relationship to the boardroom. What did that person do to help you establish the boardroom and possibly help some women get on boards? Is there one person you can think of in particular that really went all out? Who's my favorite male supporter? I mean, we have like, in Switzerland, we have like 75 male supporters. And these are the top CEOs in the country. I'm telling you, these are really powerful people. And what they do for me and for us and for everyone is they give me access to the network. I get an email from this CEO of this listed company connecting me to the other CEO of the other listed company. I'm like, this is surreal. I'm dreaming this. I love it. They just open up their network. And that's what I want more. And that's what I want actually from my male supporters mostly. We call them their corporate partners and corporate sponsors. But the reality is I don't need the financial support as much as I need access to their network. Because it's different to be introduced to another you know, CEO by another CEO and then bring them all together and you get that sense of belonging that you're not an outsider anymore. And you can't buy that. The network is powerful and look, it's worked for men for so long and that's, again, what we need the access to. Tell me about maybe some men who have a harder time being convinced of the value. Have you encountered them? We don't have them as male supporters, but we do have them part of the journey. I already have a few names in my mind. Men that are struggling with change. Let me put it this way. And we don't exclude them. We still keep them with us on the journey. And I think they're a bit scared. And I understand why they're scared. I would be as well. It's a huge change. They feel that the world have no chance for getting a board assignment. That's the fear they share with me. And I respect them sharing that fear with me. They say, I love what you're doing. And I want it also for my daughter. But the truth is that I'm afraid that I may lose my job, will not be able to support my family. Because we need to keep in mind that these very successful men, they have all this stress and burden on them. Most of the times to be the sole breadwinner, they feel that their identity is one with their work. That I'm afraid my wife will leave me if I lose my job. And I don't want that for anyone. I don't want someone to lose their job because it has to be replaced by a woman. Absolutely not. We're looking for the best people. All I'm saying is that in that pool of qualified candidates, just include also qualified women and that let the best person get the job. There are, as I said, men that have this fear that I think has been created over generations. Do you tend to find they might be older, they might have been working for a long time, and maybe it's a younger generation? So don't see that in the younger generation. But again, we've done so much work with younger men at this stage. Well, tell me about the supporters who do bring on a woman to their board and they look at that talent and say, wow, that was an unbelievable place. And thank you for doing that. I think what they like the most is that they also get 
get the support. So there are CEOs and board chairs or chairs of nominations committees that want to bring one or two women on their board, but I think they're a little bit scared. So they talk to me and they say, look, I want to do it, but what if things go wrong? I'm going to be blamed that you were the one that wrote this new female director that had not the relevant board experience and so on. What we do is we support them. Monthly updates, we talk to the other board members to create the right culture to include the new female director and so on. And they can also go back and say, but you know, we went to the boardroom and they're the experts. I mean, what else could I have done? But that's interesting. You're really trying to address what the concerns might be and then support those women through that time. Would you always describe yourself as ambitious from the start of your career, from an early age? I always considered myself as a very ambitious person. 21 years old, I just left. And that was more than 20 years ago. So I left to New York from Greece on my own. I wanted to conquer the world, traveling for the next 12 years. I've worked in London, Amsterdam, Milan, then Zurich and so on. I was just chasing the best career. So I always consider myself ambitious. I never consider myself an entrepreneur. And that's what defines me now, right? I always thought I was a very good employee because no matter what they tell you, you know, even if you are earning a seven-figure salary and you're like CEO or top executive, you're still an employee. And you realize that the moment you become a business owner. And a year ago when I decided after 22 years of corporate career to give up everything and become a sole social entrepreneur. And that's tough. But there's no going back for me. I think once you see what's on the other side, what's behind the wall, as they say, you cannot go back. Well, I love the fact that you took that risk and now you're fully embracing it. What would you say to other women who think, "Hmm, maybe I too have more of that entrepreneurship in me and I could leave the corporate world? I'm not going to lie to you. It's really difficult. I spend most of my days, blood, sweat and tears, but you have the highs. So there are like days you're like, you think you're on top of the world. It's like, I'm making a change. I'm going to make the world a better place. What you're doing is really good. Are there days that you feel rejected, abandoned, neglected, complete failure? Just like cry your day through. So it is an emotional roller coaster, and you have a lot of risks, obviously. And you know, as I said, I've invested all my personal finances and you know my families and everything. So I do have that heavy burden and risk and so on. And there's so many things that you cannot control. So it's not easy. So I think the boardroom found me, to be honest, right? So I don't believe I could ever build any other business apart from the boardroom. I'm just being honest. I think it was my calling. I think it just found me and I just could not ignore it. I think that was my destiny. And so if you find that calling, you will know when you find it because it's going to find you, right? Then I would say, go for it. Just go for it. You're never ready. I was never ready, but I was never ready even for my executive roles or from board roles. So the same is with entrepreneurship. So you will never be ready if you really want it and you're passionate about it, people will see that you're passionate about it and you're skinning the game and then you're going to be successful. So you talked about expansion and it seems like a very big year for you. Tell me too about the longer term legacy that you hope to leave. I think it's a bit weird after 22 years of a very successful corporate career, I want to be remembered just for one thing, for being the founder of the boardroom. And, you know, I think I'm just like making up for all the things that I have been doing in my corporate career for the past 22 years. So I want to be remembered as the founder of the boardroom, that someone that has literally committed your life to making the world better. So that's my personal mission. That's all I wake up in the morning, go back to sleep at night, just thinking that I want to make the world better. So that's what I want people to remember me for. 
what I wish for the boardroom, on the other hand, I guess like a parent would wish for their baby to grow up, be independent without my support, because I will invest everything within my lifetime in order to build something for generations to come. So my hope for the boardroom is to outlive me after I die and be as impactful as it was when I was here. Well, if you infuse anywhere near your level of enthusiasm into (laughs) the boardroom, it will absolutely succeed. Thank you, Sam. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Diana. The framework and process she built to place more women on boards are so important, and I'm excited to watch the organization continue to drive demand for women board members. Thank you to all of the corporations and the men who have committed to driving change in the boardroom. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. To learn more about Women on the Move and listen to the full library of this podcast, please visit jpmorganchase.com slash W-O-T-M. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.